Hey fam, thanks for checking this little recording out. If you're listening to this, it means you must have attended a talk, workshop, or even a class of mine that I recorded, and you want to get the nitty gritty. That's great. Excellent. If you're just being snoopy and you're trying to figure things out, it's all good. My name's Dan White Hodge. I'm an educator, and you're about to learn something today. Thanks again for following up, and I truly hope this adds an enrichment to you and your work. As always, hit me up if you got them questions at whitehodge.com and check out my podcast while you're at it, Profane Faith. I'll talk with you later. Peace. All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started. The time is already 2.08. I want to make sure we... uh, get in everything so welcome you guys this is good i like the intimacy of this crowd already so uh, i'm glad we got a chance to just kind of hang out like i said the last group was a little bit bigger but this will be good i may be able to go in some other places that we weren't able to go early this morning so this is good uh my name is daniel white hodge uh i am uh been around uiwi for many 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 years since uh their really their inception no pun intended on the film inception um and it was in 97 i think when we met uh, back in the day and we had like you know 80, 90 urban youth workers and stuff. And so I've been around for a while. Um, I am from Chicago right now, and uh, I teach at North Park University. I'm the director for the Center for Youth Ministry Studies, and I teach courses on youth ministry and popular culture. Uh, And one of the courses I actually teach is faith, film, and theology. And uh, I think I'll be doing that next spring uh, at the graduate level. And uh, this semester, I actually have the the, the honor and then just the privilege of teaching a course on hip-hop theology. Um, And so I am a big proponent of God showing up in culture. I am a big proponent of finding God in odd places within society. And so what this workshop is really going to hopefully help you do is to begin to deconstruct certain elements of film, media, uh, and the culture around you, all right? Uh, That's kind of what my goal. Uh, I always tell students when they take me for a 16-week semester that um, I hope to make you feel uncomfortable every time you watch a commercial or a film, that you can never just watch it for sheer entertainment anymore because you'll be trying to take it apart, all right? Uh, I don't know if I can do that now, but in 16 weeks, I dang sure know I can do it, but I'm going to try to kind of push us that way uh, and in that in that area. Uh, I'll be talking a little bit about uh, some stuff, some areas from my book, Soul Hip Hop. Again, you know, 10 bucks, I take it all, credit card, check, uh, cash. Uh, there's some other resources here. Our center, we're starting a new journal, Journal for Hip Hop Studies. And so uh, if you are interested in either submitting a piece or just wanting to know more information, there's some stuff up here. And then we offer a lot of free resources for you as wor- or, or youth workers, particularly if you're urban youth workers. So please take a flyer we have uh, webinars and if you have a computer and the internet you can log on anywhere in fact we've had some amazing webinars lately on developing youth uh, we got stuff on indigenous urban urban leadership development sustainability you know there's three parts to that how do you sustain yourself as a as a worker urban youth worker uh, and there's many many more so please take a look at that my contact information is up here so I just kind of wanted to plug that to make sure that when you when we're done you can come and grab that stuff I'll probably do go down there. Yes, ma'am. I'll probably go down there once we're once we're done and hang out down there. Yes. Um, but yes, uh, my goal is to take us kind of through through uh, film. Um, I, I am from Chicago now, but uh, I, I pretty much consider California my home. Uh, that's where I'm from. That's where I went to school. That's where I was trained. Uh, Southern California, and uh, I've done screenwriting. I've done advising on films, uh, and you know I've worked in the industry as well. And so um, it's it's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, that's right, man. That's right. Uh, it does rain once or twice a year, you know, every now and then. Um, I'm getting used to Chicago weather, you know. Anything below 67 degrees Fahrenheit is winter for me, so I am going to uh, prepare myself this winter. Uh, all that being said, uh, I love film, and I particularly love, again, where God shows up in these odd areas. Uh, but that being said, let's hop right in because films are written, produced, and directed to be actually seen at least a dozen times, if not more. Because you really can't see and take in a film the first time you watch it. Your mind is just, it's got tunnel vision. You're just trying to figure out what's going on. Who's that? You know, you're knocking the person next to you. Who's that? I'll say, oh, that's the guy? I had no idea. You know, oh, that's the bad guy? I had no idea. You know, that's the first time through. The second time through, you're like, oh, now I get it. Good films are meant to be done that way. And I encourage you to go out there and to see films that you like multiple times. So the film I'm about to show you here is one of my personal favorites from uh, the Coen Brothers, No Country for Old Men. And uh, a lot of God, a lot of theology showing up in this film. And um, again, you have to look for it though. So I'm hoping we can push past Veggie Tales, right? And a lot of this kind of bottom shelf, G-rated films that a lot of Christians say, oh, go see. Because I run to the theaters when Christians say not to watch a film. They say, don't watch this one. I'm the first one in. Because I learned my lesson with Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation. Christians were like, don't go see that. And I didn't see it until like years later. And I was like, what was I missing? Like, what was going on here? Um, because oftentimes there's a strong, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, a strong avoidance in Christ against culture type of stance that a lot of Christians take, uh, and particularly against Hollywood. But there is a lot of God in Hollywood. Um, it, a lot of the writers are faith, believers, Christians, and they implement these things in the film. So let's take a look at this clip, and then I'm going to have you guys uh, tell me about what you saw. Well, I got to 
Probably. I'm leaving that house on that. Yes, I do. You lived here all your life? This is my wife's father's place originally. You married into it? We lived in Temple, Texas for many years. Raised a family there in Temple. We come out here about four years ago. You married into it? That's the way you want to put it. I don't have some way to put it. That's the way it is. What's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost in a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to cycle it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything. Call it. country for home and it'll get mixed in with the other coins. So what did you guys see? What did you guys hear? Talk to me a little bit about this. See somebody that had a deep belief in something. Okay, good. And was governed by it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's some, some strong ethics and morals and values going on in that particular scene. What else? Right. And it's a lot at stake. You mm -hmm. don't know what, but right. a lot is at stake on right. the decision. Yeah. That's got to be made. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Awareness. Yeah. What did you say? I said awareness because uh, the, the guy, the stuff that he was asking him um, in a moment like that where you don't know what's going on. Right. You become more aware of stuff that you don't normally pay attention <laughs> right. to. Right. Right. Yep. Good. What else did you pick up on there? Hear any music? A little bit in the oh, yeah, a little bit in the background. Not initially. Coen Brothers wait 17 and a half minutes in the No Country for Old Men to introduce music into the film. 
the beginning of the film. Yes. Yes. The old guy was reluctant in answering. Mm -hmm. Sure was. <laughs> but he wasn't sure, but he knew not to. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Because what was the conversation really about? Well, the old man not what you say, but what you imply. Yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the beginning was just paying for his gas and... Yep. It was kind of like he was like, am I hearing this? Right. What are you hearing? Yes. He knew what he was really asking. Right. I don't want to hear the answer to it. Right. I asked him about where he was from. Yep. Yep. Well, good screenwriting actually implies more than it says. In screenwriting 101 says that you enter a scene late and leave early. Okay, if that makes sense. So it's almost it's like you have to catch up because remember, one page of a screenplay is one minute of film. So you can't spend a lot of time having normal conversation that most of us have. That's boring in film. It just is. So, and remember, 92% of what we communicate is nonverbal. So that leaves a very small window of what we actually say. Now, that's important, particularly when we start thinking about gospel presentation, because most of us have been versed to preach the gospel, right? In actuality, when you start looking at what that actually says in the Greek, it actually means live and walk with yourselves among in the gospel. Live in community. But we shorted it up with, go and preach the gospel. It's like, well, wait a minute, where did that get? Somewhere in the 16th or 14th century, right? All that to say, the scene is expounding on life and death. Antoine Shakur, you know, and there's a lot of God going on in this character because what the Coen brothers do is distort the normal lines of who is good and who is bad. We're going to see this in a minute when I show you a clip from The Dark Knight. All right, Christopher Nolan, another one of my favorite uh, writers and directors. Um, and who's good and who's bad? Because this film really gets at that. Who are the bad guys? Because you know, it used to be in the Western, those are the bad guys, we are the good guys. And it's usually men saving a woman, right? You know, things are switching up with that too, right? Uh, at the end of the day, they're having, Antoine Shakur is this, is this guy going around killing, but he has ethics. He doesn't just kill irrationally, he's saying, I'm going to flip a coin for it. And that's why he's even telling him, I can't call it, it wouldn't be fair. You have to call it. And he's challenging him in life. What have you been doing this whole time? What have you been up to? You be exactly. You caught that. Good. Good. Right. Right. That's right. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, so when we're dealing with film, you have to understand some basic things. One is, of course, the... Oh, that ain't working. Uh, <laughs> let me get that out of here. Let's see if this is working. Here we go. It's the implied consent. What is actually being said and what's being consented to in this? You know, and again, good films will make you challenge you to kind of begin to break down what some of these things dealing with. Now, there's obviously things called angle and flow and structure. And so 
Let's take a look at some of those things. And like I said, No Country for Old Men, amazing film. There's so much going on in that film. I, I typically teach this workshop. It's like a 201 series, and we actually do a case study on that film. And so we can kind of watch it because the ending is very pronounced as well with Tommy Lee Jones's character talking about this dream that he had about his dad, you know, and then it just ends. And if you're looking for sheer entertainment, that's going to piss you off like a mofo, man. You'll be like, what has happened here? What? You know, it's like when you watch There Will Be Blood, you know, and the last line of Daniel Day-Lewis is, I'm done. Then the music starts, right? And you're like, wait, wait, what? No, no, we need some more resolution. Oh, that's when you know it's good right there. So when we start looking at films, this is one of my favorite films right here, Menace to Society. <laughs> Menace to Society. And you know why I love it is because it saved my life, because I was Cain. That was me. And when I saw that film, this film actually impacted my life enough for me to get start thinking, if I don't change my life and the way I'm living, this is going to be my life. Because the Hughes brothers who wrote and directed this film kill off the main character. Who does that, right? Who does that? Especially in the 90s when this came out. By the way, this film is based loosely off of a screenplay called Goodfellas. You know, we see Goodfellas and we say, oh my gosh, those are just amazing actors. Those are great people. They're just acting. But then, of course, we see something with black actors and it's easy to say, oh my gosh, those gangsters, they're just killing each other. You know, that's not art at all. <laughs> and so obviously there's a difference and I want to footnote that race, gender, and class is a big thing in film and media. Obviously, we don't have the time to get into that today. But the way particularly women are portrayed, African-American women are portrayed, I mean, it, trust me, I've been in casting sessions and it is brutal to be a black woman trying to get an actor part in Hollywood. That isn't hoochie mama, a hoe, some kind of video vixen. It is brutal. But what's even more brutal is the line is out the door of black women that will do it so they can get access. See what I'm saying? And so when we begin to look at film, there's a lot going on, but I wanted to footnote that stuff because I think that's important to say. Now, when you look at this, again, looking at camera angle, colors, I took this right from the screenshot. What do you notice? Yeah, yeah, you got Grandpa. Communion. Yep, you got Communion. Good, excellent. The other people didn't catch that. So this is, yeah, this is a Communion tablet here. Little oracle here, you got the cross, good. Last Supper. And look who's kind of sitting right underneath this. Okay. Plastic on the... Oh, plastic, you know that's coming. You know, the plastic on the... <laughs> this is Grandma and Grandpa's house, right? Okay. Got the coverings over here. What else do you notice? That's a sock, yeah. yeah. You got kind of a lecture about the insist, you know, because then again, you know, this next scene, you got Grandpa lecturing. Got the finger going. Camera angles looking up as if to give, you know, kind of this hierarchical stance, you know, I've, I've got the knowledge, I've got the power, yeah. you know, and the, then the young people are just like, man, I, you know, I can't wait to get out of here, right? So again, you know, just kind of you know, just breaking it down, even the low lighting that's going in there. And if you can see the scene before, they're watching the film, It's a Wonderful Life, in Watts, in the Jordan Down housing project. If you know anything about that, that's like Cabrini Greens in Chicago. Still around, you know, Cabrini Greens is gone, you know, but it's Jordan Downs is still there, and they're watching It's a Wonderful Life. And so we're dealing with this disillusionment of 
The meta-narrative, and this is what good screenplays will typically do, is deal with this meta-narrative. Meta just meaning large and grand, and narrative, of course, just meaning story or fable. And what is this meta-narrative, right? The, the American dream, this idealization that I can achieve something. And so Menace to Society is playing with that, is teasing that out a little bit, saying, I don't know about the American dream, but I'm going to have to carve out my own because of the societal conditions that I'm living under, right? Another good film that I love is Eight Mile. Eight Mile has a lot of God and Jesus going on in it, but you have to look for it. For example, this scene, what do you see? Yep. Yep. And most people, when they see it, they, don't even, they, don't, they, catch, they, they miss this because it's kind of a footnote. If you remember Eight Mile, remember, this, this was a, a battle rap session. But in the screen notes, all right, this is what a lot of people obviously don't have access to, but in the screen notes, this was actually a church in the inner city doing outreach saying, we would rather have kids, and it's called the shelter, in the womb of the church than out on the street. Because where was this set? What city was this set in? Detroit. There you go, Detroit. We already know what time it is in Detroit. All right, so the church is saying, man, that, that's the missional church I want to be a part of. Weed, smug, smoke, and everything. They in there, but they're in the shelter. They're in the womb. And so, needless to say, Mackay Pfeiffer's character becomes a, essentially a messianic black Christ. He's wearing the cross. He's got the braids. He gives them access. Eminem, who's white, who can't enter in this scene. He gives them access. He gives them pass. And then at the end, he forgives them unconditionally. Because Eminem goes off on him, calls him out his mama's name. And here Eminem's trying to apologize to him. Look at the, notice the camera angle. Notice the cross, notice what's being accentuated. All right? And in the end, he just forgives him unconditionally. Wow. Says, don't even worry about it. Wow. Let me just bring you into the fold. Because at the end of the day, producers and directors don't just show up and look around and be like, yeah, this looks pretty good. Let's just shoot here. You know, let's just set up shop right here and shoot. <laughs> no, 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 that's not the way it happened. But trust me, because I have friends of mine who that's all their job is, is to travel around the country and just look for places to shoot. They're called scouts, shooting scouts. And they take with them little cameras and little things and they just send them back to the studios and say, hey, you know. And a lot of people don't know that there's a catalog about this thick that comes out every year in almost every city, every town, every province has some kind of ad in that catalog that gets sent to Hollywood that says, film here, shoot here. Look what we can provide. Because scouting people actually go and say, this table looks good. I don't like those chairs. Let's redo this whole thing. I wish I could take you guys on a tour of Los Angeles so you could see how different sets get turned around because oftentimes producers just come in and say, all right, we're going to take out all that roll of parking, you know, and we're going to put in our own stuff because studio design is a big, big production. Like if you study the Grammys, you know the Grammys actually is a two-day event because all the people that do that, you know, because you always see kind of the highlights of the Grammys, I mean, not the Grammys, but the Oscars. We see the Oscar, of the, uh, the, the, the highlight of the Oscars. Directors, best picture. But what about the grips? And what about the people who design the sets and people who like, color in the monsters, stuff falling off the monster's face? They get awards too. But people don't want to see that, right? So again, Eight Mile, powerful film, powerful film. Another scene in the film, I think this is powerful too, just from, a, just from a, uh, an angle. What do you see here? Yep. Where's the camera at? Yep. From her perspective. Yep. Child's perspective. She's trying to have uh, some kind of semblance of a childhood, but meanwhile, she's got all this madness going on over here. Colors are brown, they're gray, it's winter in Detroit. Again, colors speak to a large part of the film. Tells you what's happening and what's going on. 
Okay, for example, well, and particularly this thing, this is speaking to the next generation of young ladies that are going to be in your youth group who think it's okay for a young man to treat me this way because I saw my mama get beat, so it must be okay. That's just the way men treat me. Again, Amal gets at all kinds of stuff, right? It looks at the real poor ghettoization of white America, Euro America, and really begins to get at what Eminem really had to go through. And here's the other thing. Robin D.G. Kelly writes an amazing book called Race Rebels. Talks about how even the words nigga gets transposed into class. Eminem gets called nigga twice in this film. Well, why? You ain't got no daddy in your house. Your mama's on welfare. She's an ex-basehead. Oh, you one of us. You know we already know what time it is. You already know what time it is, right? And so these issues, you know, begin to stick out. Same thing here. Another one of my favorite films, North Country dealing with women's issues, women's right to work in the workplace. Period film done in 1989, so you know, obviously not that old. I mean, it was put out in what, 2005, 2004, but it was a period film. So here's the scene well, where she's getting examined by the doctor, and the doctor could care less because in the next scene, that's what he tells her to clean up with, clean with the tissue. You know, which was really the case. I mean, back in the 80s and 70s, you know, you go to women, you go to your gynecologist, you're probably going to be facing a man. And what does that mean? Because in the next scene after this, she actually walks to work and men are making fun of her because the doctor was talking about her, about what he saw under the hood. Right? And so this is amazing because this is, again, the angle, the color of the room. Notice how blue it is, cold, disdain. There's nothing lovable about this scene here. You making sense so far? Then we got a little trick that, uh, this is one, another one of my favorite films, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, uh, with camera angles. Now, not many cinematographers can do this because it gets to become gimmicky after a while, but this is what's called Dutch angles, all right? When you tilt the camera just ever so slightly, or in this case, almost on its side, to illustrate conflict or tension. So this is, the, what, this, is the, this is the intro to the final scene of Do the Right Thing, right? So this is the showdown from a screenplay perspective, right? So you've got Radio Raheem, you've got Bug Eye, you've got Smiley over here, and they're blaring that music in Sal's Pizzeria. You know, and they're like, you know, we want some other Evan brothers on the wall, right? And Spike is trying to let you know that something's about to pop off here. The cameras are all tilted almost to the side. Now, if you remember the original Batman series, they used to do this all the time. When Batman and then Robin got into a fight, they would just tilt the camera on the side. Again, Dutch angles. Make sense? So films are an important way to begin to realize what is life? What's going on in life? What's going on around us? All right? Now, let me show you a couple more scenes. I'm glad it's a small group. I'm going to push you guys a little bit further than I did this morning's group. Is that all right? Is that okay? All right, all right. So now what I want to show you is a scene from Menace to Society. I want to compare and contrast the interactions of how the adults interact with the youth. And I want you kind of to see some stuff. Now, there is an F word. I would say if you can kind of get past some of that right now, because at the end of the day, I could care less about how many F-bombs you drop, because I am after the spirituality of what's going on behind the message, because I've heard tons of sermons that destroy people, that tear down people, that put them down and never uttered one four-letter word, all right? So it's time, I'm just kind of pushes a little bit that way, but I want you to really notice the interaction between uh, the adults and the kids, and hopefully... These are not images of your youth group. Wonderful life.
Notice the angle. And every time, you go one ear and out the other. Hey, do you care whether you live or die? I don't know. Come on, man, let's be a call. All right, compare that to this. Because it is.
Now, I'm no Muslim, but I agree with some of the things they say regarding black people. And if Allah helps to make him a better man than Jesus can, then I'm all for it. So what you trying to say, Mr. Butler? Whatever changes you have to make, and you just do it. You gotta think about your life. Being a black man in America isn't easy. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, survive. All right? Mr. Butler had me thinking, because he was the only one who ever came at me like he gave a damn. And grandpa's always kicked that religion stuff, and my dad never said anything. Cornell showed me how to survive on the streets, but Mr. Butler was talking about surviving for good. So how the hell go between you and that girl? All right. What'd you see? One uh, obvious thing was uh, the camera angles. Yeah. She, uh, the grandpa comes as an authority figure looking up at him. And then the other guy comes as more of a peer almost like because they're looking at the same angle. Perfect. And then, Perfect. Perfect. You know, they keep me yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what you're supposed to do. You know what you grew up in. Your background. You know what your grandparents believe in. But you don't want to hear it. You don't want to understand it. But you got something on that says that you have some type of belief or understanding for what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I believe it's because he's come up in mixed emotions. Right. Somebody's teaching him religion. Somebody's teaching him about God. Thus said. And somebody else is telling him the streets is this way. Mm -hmm. So he's crossed up. Yeah. So yeah. He's got a cross on, so he he doesn't know which way to go, but he's going some kind of way. But there's something out there for him to believe in because three different ways something has come to him. Yeah. Well, and, and again, even looking at the script, I mean, the idea that God is still continually with him. Even in the madness, we'll explore this in a minute in one another one of my favorite films, 13. I don't know if you guys have seen 13, but we'll explore this in a minute. Um, but yes, you're right. So he's hearing these perspectives, which is a lot of perspectives that a lot of kids hear these days. This, that. It's telling, like even from that last, that last um, little episode, mm -hmm. how they had both of them in the car. Right. It makes you struggle with, like, um, it's telling like two stories at once. Mm-hmm. Because it's giving you, it's giving you like all the keys and the clues of what like the grandfather was saying, right. what uh, Sharif's father was saying. But you see it kind of acting out in Sharif's life. But it makes you curious because now you don't know if right. you know Kane's gonna take that reality or not. Exactly. So exactly. Both in the same situation. It's showing you can be both in the same situations and that you still have choices. Mm -hmm. And that by any means necessary. Yeah. You know you might have to you know, change that by doing something yeah. you've never done. Yeah. And so it's really getting at these life decisions. In one way, Grandpa's just doing what, hey, it's just come natural. This is, this is what we used to do back when I was a kid, you know, and it worked. Billy Graham did an amazing job of evangelism, you know, and, you know, and, and ministering to folks. But his style probably ended it about 35 years ago. 
We're not there anymore. You can't hand out a tract and expect somebody to be saved. Oh, yes, we hear these stories that, oh, I read this tract and I was saved. Like, that is not where people are at, especially in the hood. You ain't going to do that. My atheist friends tell me like this, like, when you hand me a tract, you've handed me something to just throw away. Yep. You've handed me something over there, like, you know, conscious. You've handed me something to recycle. You know, I'm going to put it in a recycle bin. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, I want to compare and contrast... Because one way, though he's quoting scripture, and there's nothing wrong with that scripture, it's still biblically sound, but how do you approach it? Now don't miss it. I know people say, oh, he said outlaw and Jesus. No, we're talking about ideologies, that's all. Because uh, outlaws and Tupac were after, you know, we want a Jesus that smoke like we smoke, drink like we drink. We want a contextualized version of Christ who can relate to us. And that's ultimately what everybody is after. You read, I think it's Sutherland who writes the many faces of Jesus, and he talks about the Asian Christ, the Guatemalan Christ, the German Christ. I mean, there's all these faces of Jesus, which is very interesting when you start thinking about, you know, how we look at things and how we put things together, which is one of the critiques in Christianity is that, you know, you guys are not monotheistic, you're plural, you know, you're plural, you have like God the Father and the Son, you know, it's just interesting to hear some of these arguments. But nonetheless... These films, again, to kind of connect with a lot of what you're talking about. So, what else is films doing? Films overall provide a couple of different things. A voice for people, which is what we're kind of espousing right now. We're kind of connecting with that, this voice. What is going on? What is speaking to us? How is life speaking? In a minute, I'm going to show you a clip from, you know, The Dark Knight, which I think I said, really gets at this issue of who's good, who's moral. World War II was the last moral war because we could point to an enemy and say they are bad you know even now no more data is arising you know you know why Japanese came and attacked and everything but nevertheless why do you think we have so many World War II films because it's easy once the Korean War happened and Vietnam got exposed in 62 and 61 with Lyndon Baines Johnson I mean it was it was over post-modernity it really sunk in we lost trust in institutions and by the way, World War II was actually the last war, the last declared war. Everything since then has been an operation or some mission. Now, of course, we know, logistically, we know what's going on, but there has not been a declared war since the 40s. Because that was the last, like I said, moral war. This war in Iraq, who's the real enemy? Who's, you know, like, well, them, them bad people, you know? We don't even name them, we just call them insurgents, right? But, you know, <laughs> what the hell's an insurgent? I don't know, kill them all, you know? <laughs> but this idea of playing with that, that's why I love uh, the Hurt Locker. If you haven't seen that, you gotta go see the Hurt Locker, you know? This guy's need for uh, adrenaline rush, you know, and he's going after these, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing film, you know? And uh, what's her name, uh, Catherine uh, Bicolo, she uh, won, you know, Best Director and Best Movie of the Year. First woman ever to win that, like, woo! You know, like, how long has Hollywood been around? Like, good night. So what else we got? A prize community. You know, it brings people together. It connects people. What else we got? It provides meaning. It provides a lot of meaning. You know, particularly when you think about the last 12 years has really been named the golden era of television. When you think of shows like Lost and Walking Dead and The Wire, you know, um, you know, I mean, there's a thousand shows that are out there right now that are just amazing. And then, of course, you dip into, you know, UK films or in television series, and that's a whole other area and genre. So there's a lot of meaning that we can, you know, connect with out there. And, of course, connection. Can't forget that. Spirituality. Where do we begin to find God? Who is God? Where do we begin to see God in certain areas? And how do we begin to deconstruct this meta-narrative that has been given to us, right, by whatever authority that says this is the right way to believe, this is the right way to think, this is the right way to worship? You know, and now the postmodern post-soul says, now nah, I got another way. 
And that's what Christopher Nolan is after in the film Memento, you know, which is another great film. But it's hard to interpret because it's out of order, it's out of sequence. You actually start with the ending and end with the beginning. <laughs> it's an amazing movie. But the first time you're seeing it, you're like, what is going on here? He's on the phone, it's black and white, he's talking to himself. I don't get it. You know, it's, it's, it's a frustrating enough to just put the movie down and be like, what, what the heck did I rent? I'm taking this back to Redbox. Well, Redbox doesn't even have it, right? Well, what else we got? Contextualization, being able to contextualize it. Like I said, Menace to Society was one of the films that really impacted my life. You know, it changed my life, you know, uh, because I was able to connect with that. I was able to see spiritually that I needed some change in my life and contextualization. I mean, shoot, I was on the West Coast. I was in the 92 riots, right, as a kid. So I was like, yeah, we're living in this kind of post-riot era in 93. I mean, it's, we got, I got to make a change. And of course, there's fantasy. You know, we, dis we suspend certain beliefs when we go and see Lord of the Rings or The Matrix, which are also great trilogies, you know, Star Wars. Like, I love Star Wars. But Star Wars, if you take, take it back and look at it from a thematic perspective, is simply just a Western. I mean, think about it. It's a Western movie. You got Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader in black, you know, of all things. That has racial connotation, but we don't have time for that. But nevertheless, um, you know, you got the villain who ends up becoming, you know, Luke's father. You find that out. Uh, of course, if you see it all in sequence, you know, but I started with episode four. You know, when I was a kid, it was Star Wars episode four. And I always wondered, why did they start with four? You know, until I read the book and I was like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, all right, I, I see Lucas, you know. And of course, love. You know, how do we connect with love? How do we find it? How do we understand it? How do we deal with it? Voice, it's a voice for certain people. And then lastly, it's a greater understanding of culture. This is what we're after. Making sense so far? Okay, all right, all right. Well, let's push on a little bit more. Because here's the problem. There is a tension between church and culture. That's a tension between Christians and media. Okay? A lot of people think The Simpsons, all those ungodly people, 98% of the writers on The Simpsons team are Christians. Went to Wheaton, went to Fuller, went to Harvard Divinity. All right? He's got, and, it's, and, it's, and it's in there, but you got to look. Now, of course, Family Guy and these other cats kind of take it a step further, and you got to dig even deeper for that. <laughs> I'll leave it at The Simpsons for now, since, you know, we're just a one-on-one class. But nevertheless, it's a greater understanding of culture, of what's going on. I mean, I, well, I went through and looked at a lot of the theological symbolization in The Simpsons, and I think they deal with biblical narratives uh, well over 485 times, you know, just in seasons 1 through 10. I think they're on season 22 or something like that, you know. Uh, and they're dealing with, like, uh, you know, Moses and the Old Testament and ethics and faith and what do we believe in. And, and, but again, it's... it's sat in there with comedy, animation, and he's kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm learning? Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. So greater understanding. So let's take that a step further. Let's look at some of the relationships between church and culture. And now I know this is static and it's polarizing, but I want to show you just kind of some of the perceptions, you know, when you start thinking about the perceptions between church and Hollywood. So, okay, so church perceptions from Hollywood. Church thinks Hollywood's just obsessed with money, right? It's oppressive. It's out of touch, it's unreal, Catholic, right, 
not really a lot of, uh, you know, of, of evangelical examples. You know, typically when you see a church in a Hollywood film, it's a Catholic priest. Especially when you're dealing with anything possession-wise, right? You know, some possession or some demonic presence. And I, I'll confess, this is where I have to get stretched. I can see shoot 'em up movies. I can see all kind of sexual movies. I can see all kind of, you know, fantasy films. But horror, man, I just saw Stigmata, and that came out in '97. All right, that music comes on. That's it. It's off. Mm -mm, I ain't seeing it. I struggle with that. That's my struggle. So I, I share that with you to say it's not like I'm trying to advocate for everything. It, everything isn't good for you. All right. People say it's all good. No, it ain't all good. All right. But here's the thing. Don't confuse culture shock for the Holy Spirit's voice. Let me repeat that again. If you study the elements of culture shock and what happens when you're introduced to something that is foreign to you, Often we can confuse that with the Holy Spirit's voice and think, that's the Holy Spirit told me to leave here. No, you've just got some culture shock going on. Anytime I wasn't supposed to be somewhere, I heard a distinct voice say, it's time to go. And I'm like, okay, I'm time to go. I will go on over here. But it's easy for me to get caught up in it because, you know, sometimes it's like, whoa, that's kind of getting me. You know, and so I've had to be introduced to some of the horror films. But typically, it's a Catholic you know, Catholic perspective. Uh, intolerant and, of course, judgmental. Again, this is perceptions from Hollywood about Christians in the church. Now, Hollywood, this is perception, you know, from the church. Christians, right? It's drugs, nothing but drugs, you know, but just smoking drugs, false sense of reality, images everything, story driven, right? You know, sex sells, you gotta have sex on everything, right? Instability and insecurity, emptiness, eh, but you're a bit creative, but you're still empty, all right? Here's the thing there's truth in both of these, okay? Because, yes, of course, there's Hollywood producers that are out there just for money. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I mean it's just, I've had multiple opportunities to go up to the Playboy Mansion. And I'm like, hells, nah. <laughs> I am married, and I don't need to be seeing any of that over there. All right, chief? All right? And at the end of the day, like I said, you know, you hear the Holy Spirit, well, it's time to go. But there, there, there is that element in Hollywood. You can't ignore it. And at the same time, we are kind of sometimes oppressive as Christians. <laughs> We are sometimes out of, out of touch, judgmental, you know. We like to judge rather than to love, right? And so these areas and get contrasted oftentimes, and oftentimes we just stay there. So how are we going to come to the middle, right? How are we going to be able to say, yeah, I got some of this, but you got some of that. Where are we going to meet in the middle? This is where I think, again, good film can do this. So again, let's look at another clip. Let's look at, let's go to The Dark Knight. And let's look at what... Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan did with this. Uh, in this particular scene, what I want you to kind of pay attention to is the dialogue and what's going on because this, this particular scene says a lot about good and evil, morals and ethics and how we blur those sometimes. That make sense? Alright. It'll make hopefully better sense when you see it. Start with the hand. The victim gets all fuzzy. He can't feel the back. See? You want me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you do. And you didn't disappoint. You let five people die. And then you let death take your place. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Where's death? Those mouthfuls want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Then why do you want to kill? 
drug dealers? No, no. No. No, you. You complete me. You're garbage. You kill us for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. I need you right now. When I don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, their morals, their code. It's a bad joke. I'm dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the ships are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Where's it? How about these rules? I mean, think they'll save you. The only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. And tonight you're gonna break your one rule. I'm considering it. No, there's only one of us. You're gonna have to play my little game if you want to save one of them. Yeah. You know, for a while there, I thought you really were dead. The way you threw yourself after her. see what did you hear i hear this all the time i'm always hearing different stuff so i don't want to infect your mind yet <laughs> what did you come up with what did you what did you hear Yes. He know struck a nerve. And that's what got him mad. You know, it, it seemed like he he telling you the truth, and you actually took it in him like he right. But right. Know he right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, he's hitting that nerve. He's hitting that nerve with Batman. And this is not the traditional Batman, right? Traditional Batman has morals and code, stands for truth and honor. But in this world that we live in, our world changed on September 11th, 2001. All right? It's got all messed up. The world that we live in now, this, you know, who's the bad guy, you know? Who takes the fall? Good. What else? What else? What else? What else? Unless you know where, the, unless you know where he derives from, um, where the Joker. Right. Unless you not only see 
why he is who he is now, mm -hmm. but it also makes you think that he once feel a certain way before you see the stuff that he's done now. Like right. He's, he's just not the person who he is because I just woke up in the Joker. Right. He had to struggle with. <laughs> right. These people really don't, you know, it make you just think about those. Absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. Somewhere deep down inside of him. What like, got him to where he's at? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is part of, I wrote down some things here just so we can kind of skip on to another thing, but I wanted to give you some basic tools for film analysis. You know, there's color that you have to take into account when you look at film. There's props and obviously music. I mean, scoring a film is huge. It's big business. Where you put the hi-hats, where you put the strings, where you put the, you know, how is that going to affect how people see the film? You know, particularly when um, it's always interesting to me to be on the set and watching something film because it did don't look like what it looks like on there. There's no music. There's no cutting because, you know, you have to shoot a scene typically three and four and five and six times, you know, just to kind of get the scene that you're looking for. So you'll act the same. Well, I don't I'm not an actor, but the actors will act the same thing over and over and over again for like, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40 times. But then when you add it on film, you know, and then of course you got to layer it to get the kind of, you know, look that you're going after. Of course now with HD and Big Red, it's a whole different, whole different ball game. But music is big. Of course, props and color, we talked about that. Characterizing. What characters are added? And by the way, if you haven't gone to this website, you just got to go. IMDB.com. The Internet Movie Database. This is going to help you just begin to really understand who the producers, who the writers, what else have they done, what are some themes. Good, a couple other thoughts here and then we'll push forward here a little bit further. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Woo, you brought up a good one. I love the television series. I don't know if you guys have seen it, Supernatural. Love it. I highly recommend you guys going and seeing Supernatural because a lot of you think, oh my God. No, it is Judeo-Christian. In fact, in season five, the devil actually shows up and kills all the other false gods, you know. So it's, but, but here's the thing. They paint what filmographers have typically done in the last 20 years, a sympathetic devil, right? Hey, look at me. I just question God. It, if this is what happened to me, Imagine what could happen to you if you think, if you have an independent thought. Hey, hey, I'm just putting it out there. I'm just saying. And man, I'm telling you, Supernatural goes after it. And the way they show demon possession there is way more, way more tame than what kind of other films do. You know, on that, you know, talking about this, you know, the devils in high most places, you know, we talk about that, right? In scriptures, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? And these demons have made themselves to be corporate CEOs, owners of companies. And that was kind of the, the, the goal of the Winchester brothers, right? Is to go and kill these demonic forces to bring good and better. But here's the thing. One of the brothers is an atheist, doesn't believe in God. Now, how ironic is that? Right? Supernatural. you got to go see it. Another good one is Paradise Now. It's in Arabic, but oh my gosh, the, the subtitles are just done well. It's about these two Israeli brothers who are now on a mission to go blow up somebody in Jerusalem. But one of the guys starts saying, why are we doing this? So this is what Allah has told us, like, who, and where, did, where does this come from? So he's starting to question, well, what happens when we die? Well, the, the virgins show up. And who told you that? And, I don't know, it's just always been this way. So he's questioning all these things, right? And so, amazing film, powerful narrative when you start thinking about what film study and kind of the critique of themes and language kind of gets at. 
First one is Supernatural. The other one is Paradise Now. It's in subtitles, but you, you'll get past it. Trust me, it's superb on theology and God. Then, of course, The Believer. I don't know if you guys seen The Believer with, um, what's his name? Everybody used to like him. He was in The Notebook. Um, Gosling, Ryan Gosling. He is a Jewish guy by ethnicity and religion who is a neo-Nazi. How's that for irony? Huh? Huh? I'm telling you, man. And it's deep and he's conflicted. Because on one hand, he's never been able to have an independent thought. And people, you know, so he's kind of grown up this atheistic, humanist perspective. But at the end, well, I won't let you happen. I'll let you know what happens at the end. All right. It's called uh, The Believer. All right. The Believer. Four forms of film criticism. I just want to kind of give this to you as well. The first one is genre criticism. This examines the genre of the film. Is it comedy drama? Is it melodrama? Is it a comedy? Is it just horror? I mean, what is it and how does it stay true to that? Does that make sense? Then you have auteur. And this simply means who's the producer, the writer, the director, and how do they speak to the film? For example, you know when you're watching a Scorsese film. At least I know when you're watching a Scorsese film. Or you know when you're watching a Quentin Tarantino film. It's going to be blood. It's going to be guts. All right? There's going to be some racial intonations, you know, in there. Um, yeah, I love Inglorious Bastards. Then he has these long scenes where people are just talking. Watch Reservoir Dogs, you know, that scene when they're at the restaurant, you know, they're just sitting there talking for almost 10 minutes of the film, and who does that, right? But that's part of who he is as a writer and a director. Good films, I give you a hint, when you're looking at films, you, like, you know, you wanted to go see who's, you know, what, what are you going to watch this weekend? Look for something that's been written and directed by the same person. Yeah, baby, that's right, I know, see, she knows, she knows. <laughs> So that's a hint right there. Pe typically, when you can maintain control, which is a rare thing in Hollywood, uh, you, you come out with a better product. Thematic criticism is exactly what it is, what themes arise in the film, and then ultimately cultural. What is the, what is the focus of the film's social context? How is the film handling ethnic relationships, cultural issues, and the culture of the people being represented? Does that make sense? I'm kind of flying through, but I wanted to kind of at least give you some tools as you're under, better on trying to understand and unpack film. Um, a couple of focuses that I'll give you that was in that handout, but I didn't get a chance to. Uh, one is called social focus that I kind of want to pull out and world view focus. There's seven all together, but these are the two big ones that I would suggest to start with. And this applies not only to film, but to television and to commercials. And commercials, you got to pack a lot in in 30 seconds, sometimes even 10 seconds. That's where you really see the madness come out, as in commercials. And they're quick. And of course, you know, the glory of it all is Super Bowl time, right? When you kind of see the, all the, the premier commercials, right? But social focus, mainly just looking at the social aspects. Worldview is how do the characters, people, and situations interact with their worldviews, and how do they conflict, and how do they create drama? That make sense? Okay, so hopefully. <laughs> um, so at the end of the day, we want to be able to break these things down to push further into church and culture. Now let's kind of go there, go to church and culture, because at the end of the day, the bottom line is there are several stances the church has taken over the years in relations to theology and culture. And the first one is the easier one, and that's just avoidance. Let's just leave it alone. It's bad, it's evil, I don't want nothing about it, just don't even touch it. In fact, during the 50s, the church design resembled arcs, bolts. And we know Noah's Ark was, you know, everybody was encapsulated inside. So we're inside, we're in our church, 
We're nice and neat. We'll evangelize a few, but not too many. Don't be coming in here with all that mess. God don't want that. Don't be bringing all that craziness in here. Right? But it's just us, and it's us against the world. Well, we sort of got a cautionary statement. I, you know, I'm going to move into Christ and culture and paradox. Be careful. The world might influence you. And most of the times, people just retreat back into avoidance, though. Because it's comfortable. It's easy. See, if you can get to the next area, which is really dialogue, Christ transforming culture. This is kind of what we're after today with these film clips. You know, how do we transform it? How do we get into the ethics, the morality of these things? Film is abstract art. Most directors that I've had out and writers that I've had out to speak, they all say, hey, it's your interpretation. This was mine, but keep dialoguing with them. That's the point of it. Well, what else? Ooh, here we go. Appropriation. Christ of culture. Jesus in every part of the culture, and we see him in the good, the bad, and the ugly. See, we forget about those parts even of the Bible. We forget that David sold his boy out for a piece of ass, right? We forget that, you know, Ruth, we forget, you know, what was going on with Esther. We forget about Tamar. We forget about all these things. We forget about Jacob and what Jacob did, you know. All these things, you know, and then he just, Matthew even lists off the lineage of who's in Jesus' bloodline. Like, whoa, that's a guy. And again, that's what EDI Noble and, and, uh, and Young Noble are after in the outlaws. They're saying, look, man, I'm a product of the pimp, the pusher, and the reverend. We all lost souls trying to find our way to heaven. They're breaking it down. So this appropriation, and then ultimately, can you have a divine encounter? Christ above culture, Jesus is above and in culture, still he dominates and governs this world, both the sacred and the profane. Because we forget about, in Jesus' story, the birth of Christ, that the wise man weren't really wise man, that was really kind of changed around the 16th, 17th century to make things look a little bit better. That word is actually translated as magi. In the Greek, Magi is only used three other times in the New Testament, and it's used to refer to a sorcerer and or witch. Why would sorcerers and or witches show up to the birth of Christ and bring incense and mirth and all these things? Why would God use something so profane yet to bless the name of the Lord, right? See, these are some things about the Bible, and you know, we forget about Jesus' language towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You didn't call people dogs and vipers. That is the equivalent of the F word today. In John 6, we have a whole litany of Christ saying, all right, I know I fed you, I know I blessed the food, but will you follow me? Will you drink my blood and eat my flesh? That is a sin. In that context, in the Hebrew code, you do not touch that which is dead. You don't touch what that is what I'm living. And now Jesus said that. And in John 6, 6, 6, it says, those who were with him withdrew no more. Because in paracanonical literature, we know there was more than 12 disciples. But at that point, it came down to 12. And it even still even says one did him out, you know. Even in the madness. So we've got to begin to kind of break these things down. Because at the end of the day, I am tired of being in the caution and avoidance stance. I just am. Does this make sense? Let me push y'all a little bit step further then as we think about faith development in all of this. Okay. So post-soul faith development, all of us start with the stage one, and all of these are not static, we can interact in all of them, but before you meet Christ, before you have a relation with God, we come out of some kind of chaos or unconsciousness, right? And then you get to know who God is, you start reading the Bible, you start knowing, you set into stage two, which is consciousness, you're churching, bless you. Start going to church, start figuring things out. But here's the thing, the, um, oh, what is his name, the does all the Christian survey stuff. Oh, with Barna. Barna Research Group said that young Christians within the year to a year and a half 
of them becoming Christians, if they're not put back to work in the church in some capacity, here's what happens to them. They turn into tradition. And their faith development is stymied. And don't grow anymore. Because I'm just doing the same thing over and over. As humans, we're trail horses. I love horses, but I don't like trail horses. You can't get them to go. You can't get them to jump. You can't get them to do anything. They're just following the horse in front of them. And if that horse stops, they stop. You ain't got to do nothing. They give me all these things. Go this way. Go right. Nah, 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 nah. I want a horse that's got mm, vigor in them, right? I was on a horse one time, peed, and just took off for like two miles. I was like, right on, horse. Right on. My butt was sore afterwards, but right on. And that's, I think, the, 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 the life that God wants to give us because he brings us into stage four, your Job moment. If you haven't had it, just keep living a little bit longer so you'll get it. Doubt. I prayed. I did all these things. I fasted, and God still didn't answer my prayer. Still didn't get that job. Grandma still died. What do you do? What are you doing that? Because see, the most powerful person in the story of the prodigal son is not the prodigal son. It's the brother. Because I did all the right things. It's easy being the prodigal son. Trust me, I've been there. Easy to do that. It's easy to see the father, which in that context, standing up in his chair is a huge thing to do, right? You don't do that in northern Egyptian African culture. The father rarely stood up. So the fact that he stood up, the brother's like, whoa, whoa, hold the F up. I've been the best son that you can have. You killing the fatted calf of this fool. I did all the right things. And you telling me that, oh man, no, hell no. That's the story I want to have in Hollywood right there. It's the prodigal son's brother. Prodigal God, if you haven't read Timothy Keller's book, excellent book. But see, what church folks try to bring us back is right back into tradition. You can push past this. You can get into stage five, which is mystery. The mystery of God. Who is God? You know, but we've explained everything away about God, right? Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, says this. He says, God is dead. That's his whole thesis. God is dead. Got pissed all kind of people off. But I see what Friedrich Nietzsche was going off of. He was simply saying, we've explained everything away with the modern era. Science, religion. Why do you need a God if everything makes sense? Why do I need God if everything I know is there? That, that's not God. We've explained God away in three systematized theologies. You know, we got science to explain the heavens. We're done. I, I don't really need a God for that. There's no mystery. And God says you can get into this stage six. I'm going to give you some enlightenment. I'm going to give you some enlightenment. But here's the thing. This is the area right over here. Church folks try to keep us right over here. Anthony Penn, if you haven't read his book, Why Lord? Suffering in the Human Context, talks about a nitty-gritty hermeneutic. This hermeneutic that moves beyond, let's just pray about it. And getting into the nitty-gritty of life. I'm in pain. I'm in hurt. The reason Cain and Old Dog couldn't connect because they're like, how can God exist here? You got all this stuff and you ain't even living it out. So I dang sure ain't going to believe what's going on in your life. Remember, when I tell you about verbal communication, Donald K. Smith lists out 13 signal systems in culture. And he lists them in order from least believable to most believable. You know what's at the top? At least believable? Verbal. You know what's at the bottom and most believable? actions and behavior so I'm watching what you do Kamasi Brown puts it like this in one of the great documentaries called you know made in America bloods and crips he says it like this the young people of the 60s and 70s were the young people that we overlooked and we passed them by and we didn't see them but they saw us and because we ignored them and you know kind of passed them by you know you didn't give them that voice 
So enlightenment, if you can make it this far, I begin to say, I say, you're really going to start growing. And I think everybody has to have this Job moment. Because it can be a difficult area because it feels like God is not really alive and what's going on here. What's happening, God? Like, I went to school, got four degrees, and I'm still a unemployed. What, what is going on? I thought you promised me this. You know, what is happening? How do you deal with God in the profane? Let me get this, and I'm going to show you. We're going to end on a clip. Go ahead. What do you do because... I'm looking at that ladder and I'm paralleling it with my life because you come into church, whatever your your culture or your background is, you come into yeah. church and you learn God from somebody else's point of view. Yep. Then your relationship with God gets personal. Yeah. Um, and then you have to live by those standards yeah. which make you look at like, do I really believe this or did I believe this because I had a lot of faith in this individual or mm -hmm. this person? I feel like I got to the place to where stuff that I started living by, I reached a place like just in my life where it wasn't it, it wasn't a substance in it. It's like, man, this ain't this mm -hmm. ain't doing nothing for me anymore. Mm -hmm. My question to you is when you get right around that like in between the doubt, the mystery place mm -hmm. where you really start, I need to go outside of what I know. Yeah. And be open to Yeah. Some things yeah. that I might not agree with because of what's already inside of me. Yeah. What do you hold on to? Because mm. <laughs> that's a scary place. That's a scary place to be. What yeah. do you hold on to in that place? Because then you might, and this is my thing, you might learn some stuff that might make you have to go and totally like almost destroy a, a majority of the stuff that make you yeah. who you are. Brother Kenneth, that is the question. And that is the question I will continue to have us hold in tension because that's the journey of faith. That is the journey of when you get to this because this makes sense. This is modernity. I go to church, I read my Bible, I have pray, and things work out. That doesn't happen so well over here. But Christ says, here's, here's a story that, that, that Christ gives in the um, Apocrypha. Most of us don't even read the Apocrypha. There's a story with him walking around with Peter and the rest of the disciples. And Christ tells Peter, Peter, they go onto this brook and he says, I want you to pick up this rock, throw it in the lake. And so, you know, he's like, all right. Well, actually, he tells all the disciples, but he's really looking at Peter. And, you know, disciples look around, you know, and people picking up these big rocks. Peter's like, shoot, pick up this rock, here you go. So the next stop, Jesus shows up and says, okay, I'm going to bless you based on the size of the rock that you threw and that represents your faith. So Jesus is like, shoot, yeah, right, on, all right. Comes to the next thing, pick up a rock, throw it. So Peter's like looking around and picking up the biggest rock, right, and chunks it into the river, right? He says, all right, Jesus, give it to me. He says, all right, good, and just keeps walking. He's like, whoa, what the hell, Jesus? You picked up this rock, and Jesus tells him, did you pick up the rock because I asked you to or because I, you loved me? That didactic in those relationships because oftentimes, again, you know, this tradition is, is comfortable. I know it's comfortable. I, mean, I just moved to Chicago. I'll just be transparent with you. I ain't found a church, but you know where my church is? It's in The Walking Dead. It's in The Wire. It's in Mad Men. It's in films like this. So I'm not spiritually inept just because I'm not going to some four-walled place. So I just haven't found a place yet that I can connect with. But I connect with what I'm finding in film and television. I'll sit through The Walking Dead second season and I'm like, well, I'm blown away. I'm ready for a benediction. But it's unstable. So I can't really tell you anything because that's part of the journey. I can't really tell you, here are the five steps. Tony Robbins did that great in the 90s and look how well that worked out for people. Same thing with Benny Hinn. 
You know, no disrespect to people who like him, you know, but those, those healings, those miracles, a lot of them are, people are dead now, you know, people are suing this brother, right? <laughs> of course, they can't sue him because he's a non-profit entity, and he's like, hey, you know, you lost, the, you lost your faith, so that's how you got killed. This is a rough area to be in. <laughs> this is a rough area. So you ask the million-dollar question. What do I hold on to? And I don't, I don't know. For me, like I said, it's, it's, it's certain elements of life and my family and my little girl. I was just eating lunch and I pulled out this little piece of paper. And it's just a little writing that my little girl wrote. And I don't even know how this ended up in here. But this speaks to me. Because it lets me know my little girl's innocence. And the fact that she loves daddy and there's this little note. I probably put it in here on a rush one day, tucked away until it just showed up today somehow. Very similar to what Antoine Chigurh is talking about with the coin. Does that make sense? I want to show you a film clip. I, don't, I know we're kind of running the press on time, but I want to show you a film clip from 13. Because it really gets at this area of the mystery and the enlightenment. Now, has anyone seen 13? It's an amazing film. It's about a young little girl who's white, who's ghetto. All right? And what happens when a Gen X mom is trying to raise a millennial with very little parental skills? And this is the end of the film, so it's the catharsis. It's kind of the moment when the main character is about to learn some lessons from a screenplay perspective, right? And she's found out. All of her lies, her secrets, everything is found out. Now, there's some language, but I want you to kind of push, pack that, push past that a little bit and see where God is showing up. Notice the symbolism, the imagery that's happening, and notice particularly what happens at the end when the mom really starts to embrace the young lady. Does that make sense? Because we're going to get into this here in this clip. It's called 13, written by a 17-year-old, Nicki, um, uh, not Nicki Minaj, I know some people was thinking that, now no Nicki Minaj, Nicki Reed, she was 17 when she wrote this film, and she wanted to put it out for young ladies to, 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 to hey, you'll slow down, and it's really about Central Hollywood's teen culture. So if you've ever been to Hollywood, you know Hollywood ain't what Hollywood was in the 30s, right? It's ghetto. All right, so here, check it out.
Powerful stuff. So theologically, I think there's a lot going on in there. And the mom finally realizes, and she becomes a messianic figure to her daughter. And embraces her. And, you know, and we do the same thing to God, you know. We tell God, no, push God away, no, I don't want it. But Christ wants to hug, kiss, and hold us. But until we take away the mess and distractions of life, you know, you just can't come in. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, To come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in my heart. You will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the last scene. They lay down together, mother and child. And the mother finally gets it. I need to be, even though she's telling me, get away from me, get off me. How many times do we do that to God? Get off me. Don't touch me, you know. Christ says, I'll, 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 kiss your, I'll kiss your wounds. It's all right. So in the profanity of it all, God is still there. The mystery of God, the enlightenment. And back to the question, like, what do we hold on to? I don't know. That's, that's the journey. That's the journey. Hopefully this has been enlightening to you guys. Thank you for taking the extra time. Blessings to you. Contact information is up here. Stuff for our center, the new journal of hip-hop studies, books. Blessings on you. I'd love to continue to dialogue. I will see you guys around. Here's my contact info. Thank you.